here with Every Kind of People, and they didn't. I'm Tim Worthington, joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that nobody else ever seems to is writer Martin Ruddock. Martin, what are you up to and where can we find it? I can be found uh, writing for Panini's Doctor Who magazine and I'm a regular contributor to We Are Cult. Uh, which is we are cult dot rocks I think and oh I, I can generally found talking utter rubbish on Twitter at, at sugar ray buzzard yeah that doesn't really narrow it down I think we all do that but you mentioned Doctor Who magazine which we're both affiliated with as we're all being asked this at the moment let's just get this out of the way are you the watcher I am definitely not the watcher and neither am I everyone who's been asking anyway speaking of the watcher here's something that you were the watcher ing presumably back in very jaunty piece of music i recognize that straight away because it's been drilled into my brain ever since then but i'm sure most of you listening won't have a faintest idea what it was martin what was that so that was the baker street boys which was a uh, sort of bbc kids drama from the early 80s it's about uh, well the baker street irregulars i think i mean it's about a bunch of kids um that helped out sherlock holmes in um solving minor crimes yeah, so you know tv afternoon slot kind of crimes really things but nothing too heavy and i, I remember um because my parents realized when i was young i was quite a tv child they could put me in front of most things my younger brother is four years younger and he was a bit of a handful and i could just generally be given a book or a comic or tv so if there's anything they could find that could just stick me down in front of it just generally tend to work out quite well and i remember this going out um and i would have been about seven years old at the time and it's funny there is a bit of a Doctor Who link to it because it's actually uh, created by Anthony Reid who is the script editor of Doctor Who in the late 70s. Anything period always had this sort of kind of reassuringly expensive kind of cosy feel about it didn't it? It's very much a sort of kids version of something like the Talons of Wang Chiang or something like that without the you know any problematic bits. It's about a bunch of kids they solve crimes, they help Sherlock Holmes, who never appears in it, apart from in silhouette, and leaves them sort of annoying cryptic notes, which he just signs SH on the bottom of. And I remember it prompted me to become slightly obsessed with becoming a detective at the time. And <laughs> I decided I was going to mean, you couldn't easily become a Time Lord, couldn't easily become a superhero or anything like that. But a detective, you had people like the Harvey Boys and things like that. It seemed a bit more, seemed a bit easier, really. So my, I remember my dad coming back from a car boot sale with this box full of old Hardy Boys hardbacks about the same time. And I just threw them all away, apart from the detective manual. And spent about three weeks while the Baker Street Boys was on, just going around the house, kind of leaving cryptic notes everywhere and signing SH at the bottom. My mum was like, what are you doing? Well, it's interesting you should bring up Anthony Reid being responsible for this, because there were quite a few similar series around this time, you know, 
primarily costume drama type, but also sci-fi ones as well, created by or written by people involved with Doctor Who, mainly children's programs, but also the Sunday classic serials, which for years were written and produced by Barry Letts and Terence Dix, who you know, were responsible for Doctor Who during one of its most successful phases. And it was all, if you knew those names at that age, it was like kind of like or not quite extra Doctor Who, but it was like a special additional treat, like something you could go to in between, because there were those long gaps between series of it. And it was always nice to see a series that somebody like Terence Dix had worked on. And they were always quite high quality as well, quite often had people from Doctor Who in them. I'm not sure if the Baker Street Boys ever did. They did have Adam Woody up before he's dead. They did have Adam Woody yeah. They had Stanley Liebel for ever decreasing circles. And of course, character actor Colin Jeevans, which is his full name. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what <laughs> Who was in Doctor Who, actually, him. wasn't he? Yeah, he was in. Wasn't he in Canine and Company? Wasn't it? I think he might have been in Canine and Company, if I misremember that, maybe. I might be thinking he was definitely in Adam Adamant Lives, so yeah. that's probably where we're getting confused. We're losing people now, aren't we? <laughs> Bye, everyone. But, but what I particularly remember is that I kind of pretended to myself that I didn't like the Baker Street Boys, because I didn't really like anything with plucky children, talented children, and believe me, we've got some more of that coming up later. But it was around the same time as ITV had a, I think, again, it was on Sunday afternoons, Young Sherlock starring Guy Henry, who I assume was about 15 at the time, but he was old enough to, you know, pass for a young adult. I don't remember that, actually. It was, nobody remembers it, it's just me, but it's a very sort of, you know, there's the Steven Spielberg, Young Sherlock Holmes and the Pyramid of Fear, which is all a bit, oh gee, how will we ever stop this? Although obviously (laughs) not with American accents. This was really kind of a, you know, a youngster wanting to be a detective and people not taking him seriously. And it's before Jeremy Brett as well, isn't it? It's before it's the... It's just before it. And again, I think it was Granada as well. So I've never looked into it. I wonder if there's some continuity between the two. Although young Sherlock was... I think it was all on videotape. It didn't quite have the high production standards of the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes. Incidentally, uh, the very first Adventures of Sherlock Holmes... That was what it was officially called, wasn't it? But that was filmed round the corner from where my family lived at that point. Because there were some old Victorian houses. I remember my dad coming in and saying he'd seen some camera people setting up cameras and should we go and watch? And long this was about six months before the series was on. We saw Jeremy Brett pulling up in a sort of handsome cab, a horse-drawn one, and getting out and going into this old house. Oh, wow. So it being filmed. And years later... I was actually able to confirm to Andrew Pixley, the sort of famous TV historian, exactly which street that was filmed on. That's that's an achievement unlocked, isn't it, when you're telling Andrew Pixley stuff? Well, I dare say he knows a lot about the Baker Street Boys, but I haven't seen it from that day to this. The only thing I know was that it was one of the very first BBC video releases, and I've seen that go for a fortune on eBay. I mean, what's actually on that? Is it the whole series? I or? think it's like a couple of the stories, isn't it? Because they're all two-parters. And, of course, they edited everything down in those days because they think you didn't want the credits, and so they put some sort of terrible wipes on it, you know. Um, I remember because early releases were things like the young ones as well, weren't they? Which were all kind of sort of hacked together and... Blake Seven, of course, Doctor Who, in the Brain of Morbius, which is about 
45 minutes long or something <laughs> in total. You know, these things were just absolutely hacked to death. So it's probably, you know, somebody might have taken like a whole series of that, just taken the scissors to it and just condensed it down to an hour, an hour or something. And yet it's never resurfaced anywhere. That's really odd because particularly the moment there is Sherlock Mania and obviously the, the nominal Baker Street Boys became his homeless contacts in the all singing or dancing Gators and Moffat Sherlock. So its failure to reappear is a bit odd, really. It is, really. You'd kind of expect it to be on something like UK drama, where, you know, where, I mean, my girlfriend every now and again, work, and she works from home a lot, she'll just turn on and all creatures great and small will be on there. I mean, you don't see all creatures great and small anywhere else, but it's there. So you kind of expect it to be on a channel like that. I mean, we don't have Bravo anymore or something like that ilk, but you would expect it to kind of crop up somewhere like that and you know they did keep it all they it's not one of those things they wiped it's it's still out there and the other thing i remember that baker street boys is just thinking being a little seven-year-old pedant going hang on two of them are girls i was going to bring that up yeah that it because i understand they didn't call it the baker street irregulars because it would have been a bit sort of playground sniggery but the baker street kids surely i mean i know we've come on in leaps and bounds since the early 80s but there was quite a kind of not sexism but just that sort of thing we can't put women in the title of any kind just in case somebody notices it's like so you've put some girls in it but and you know they're not even girls who are dressed up as chimney sweeps with their hair put up under a flat cap go oh no cover it's no not nothing like that no sort of attempted sort of Victorian cross-dressing or anything along those lines. But no, we've got girls in it. Let's just, just not mention them. But, well, I mean, we could carry on debating whether the Baker Street Boys was aimed at boys or girls or both or nobody in particular. But one thing that I'm convinced was very definitely aimed at boys around this time, rightly and wrongly, was this. <laughs> launched the Eagle comic in 1982 which I remember really excitedly running up to the newsagent for to get it with the space spinner on the front and the Mekon and being really excited all day reading it several times but there was one strip in particular that stood out to me and I'm glad you've mentioned this because so few people out of all the memorable strips in it seem to ever mention this one. Martin what are we talking about? We're talking about Doom Lord and Doom Lord was a photo strip a sort of sci-fi horror photo strip a fumetti they call it don't they which is where you've got people just sort of acting out the strip you know speech bubbles over the top and doom lord was this alien in a fright mask who who basically came to earth to steal the identity of it's a, it's a policeman or a journal i think it's a policeman he steals the identity of a policeman after killing him and he's basically sort of plotting you know to, to bring the planet down. And I remember, kind of, I mean, I was quite young 
when this when this came out. But the, the the relaunch of Eagle was just like the biggest thing. I mean, everyone talked about it at school, despite the fact that we were all little kids and nobody could have possibly even even known about the revival of Dan Dare in 2000 AD because we were all a bit young for that, really. We all, I mean, Dan Dare was, and the Eagle was something that we sort of knew about from our parents, sort of having kind of read as, as kids. So there was this big advertising thing. I remember it was advertised on TV quite a lot, wasn't it? For, yes, you, I mean, it was, And yes. the Space Spinner. And of course, when you're small, everything seems huge anyway. So it's like, this is the most exciting thing in the world ever. And I remember getting this first issue of the new Eagle and going, oh, yeah, OK, just reading through. This is good. I mean, I love comics. So I was just thinking, I mean, Doom Lord came on and Doom Lord absolutely scared the crap out of me because there's something about those strips, isn't there? They're very, I mean, obviously, they're very kind of like posed and they're very sort of fake. But it wasn't exactly helped by the fact that we lived in Slough. At the time, we lived in Slough, where the Century 21 studios were. At the end of our road, there was a playing field. And that first episode of Doom Lord starts off with Doom Lord just appearing on some common somewhere, murdering this policeman, stealing his identity. And you know, he's a shapeshifter. He takes his identity and um, there's this fiendish plot which goes on for quite... I mean, I've, I lost track of it. In the end, I think it ran for quite a long time. Didn't it change tack a lot? Like, I mean, to cutting long story short, Doom Lord was, as I remember, he was the servitor from the planet Nox, who was there to pass judgments on the worth of other planets. And I think the journalist was called Howard Harvey that rumbled his identity. But um, I think when there were a series of Doom Lords, one of them wanted to save the Earth. And his son came at one point or something. I have a vague memory of. I've never found anything to back this up, but there's a storyline where he got hit on the head by, I think it was a camera in the TV studio, and they would say, Mighty Doom Lord, please do not harm us. And it was, Doom Lord, what is Doom Lord? I am a bank manager, my name is Brian Smith. Or so, and then the people coming in saying, Now about this loan, i.e. It's like, Hello, yes, was it something I said? So it went, they ran out of steam pretty quickly, but it went on. I looked it up before for seven That's years. Seven years of Doom Lord, I mean, that's a lot of mileage. I mean, to, to get out of any sort of competition. I mean, I suppose they rebooted it sort of multiple times because I say you have the Son of Doom Lord. I mean, eventually it just turned into like a regular comic strip, didn't it? Um, I remember the first couple. There was Doom Lord and then there was there was Doom Lord Two. I think they gradually sort of softened the character, so Doom Lord became this sort of superhero, despite the fact that he was a kind of ghastly fright masked alien who with, with fearsome powers and the disintegrator ring of course which everyone used to put on rings and christmas crackers in the playground and pretend to be doom lord i do remember that but it's interesting it's i mean people are probably wondering why the eagle was such a big deal the relaunch of it but i think it wasn't just that it was photo strips because you know there were there were comics for girls with photo stories in uh, so it wasn't a new thing, but it's more... I mean, the two things that really cement this in my mind were... When I started watching Stranger Things, the first series of it, the first thing I thought was, this reminds me of the photo strips in The Eagle. So it had that sort of 80s sci-fi horror quality, but also things like, not just Doom Lord, but also The Collector, The 13th Floor, Manix to an extent, all the strips in it, apart from Dan Dare, which didn't really fit in with this, 
or the, the what was the football one called? I'm not including that in it in this analysis either, but they kind of were of a piece, sort of with not obviously not with video nasties, but that whole culture of you know the covers of them and the being told legends of this happened and that happened. The strips in the Eagle weren't far away from that. I mean, obviously, you know, we weren't seeing those videos at that age, but they were part of that whole thing that was swirling round, as I say, the early 80s sci-fi horror thing. And that's why it was... It wasn't like other boys' comics. It wasn't even like 2000 AD, which is, you know, in the future and witty. No, it was very gritty. It was designed to frighten the life out of you, and it succeeded, I'd say. Yeah, it, it very much... I mean, it's... It's funny, I don't even have to look at that first page of Doom Lord. It is just permanently ingrained in my brain. I mean, he appears in the middle of a common, dressed in what looks like a shower curtain, kills this policeman with his disintegrator ring and assumes his identity. I mean, and even you've got Howard Harvey running off, sort of exit stage, left it in a really sort of stagey, I must escape and warn the world about this shower curtain daily and with a fright mask on yeah i mean that for that first page i think it's part it must have sort of stuck with me just because i became quite afraid of that playing field and you know thanks to sort of public information films i mean the end of our road was quite a scary place because it had pylons it had electric substation you know behind that it had dark and lonely water and you had the playing you had a school playing field will look just like that common from Doom Lords, so I'm surprised I ever left the house. Moving on from something that I remember really, really well, for the reasons we've stated, to something that I have absolutely no recollection of at all. So this is going to be good. Who puts the future in your hands? Who gives you robots to command? Who lets you build fighting creatures wilder than a movie feature? Robotics, you create them, you control them. Who puts the future in your hands? Who gives you robots to command? Our 2000 comes with what you see here. Batteries not included. Our 1000 sold separately from Milton Bradley. Okay. I'm just going to come out and say, I don't know what this is. I really want to know what this is. I've got nothing to say in the introduction to it. Martin, what was robotics? Robotics was like a sort of strange cross between, somewhere between Star Wars action figures and Meccano and maybe a bit of sort of other construction toys like Lego. It was something which sort of used to come in these kits, really. And you come a big power pack and you'd have motors on them and you could build these enormous sort of walking attack walker things or um these sort of dune buggies they were supposed to, it was supposed to be like a kind of space toy and it would come with little men that would sit in a cockpit i mean this would have been about i don't know about 1985 maybe i thought it'd have been about nine and i remember just being given this set of robotics and initially i was thinking this is enormously exciting but at the same time i haven't got a clue what to do with it so i did what any self-respecting doctor who fan with a couple of back issues of dwm would do and got some plastic bags and some felt tip pens and some ping pong balls and built one of the mind creatures from the keys of marinus can you just describe them for the non-doctor who fans out there They're sort of brains with eyes on stalks in sort of cake bell jars and they're not very good. <laughs> no, no, they're really not very good. 
but yeah, I I made one, and I don't know why I made one. But to be fair, I was you know just perhaps quite an unusual child. I used to make things out of plasticine. I saw a I don't know was, the Rock and Roll Years was on TV, and there was some clip of Harold Macmillan on there. So I made a plasticine Harold Macmillan one day just because I was what? bored. Yeah, yeah, that happened. It was quite real. It was, it was quite realistic as well. Well, that's satire. But I'm guessing this was somewhere between. It sounds to me that's between Transformers and Lego Technic. Yeah, sort of. I mean, it was quite. It was all quite big. It was quite a sort of large toy. So it came with like these sort of long sort of struts and um, like the motors I mentioned, uh, wheels, and you could kind of sort of make these. I know you could make something that looked a bit like Big Track out of it. I mean, one of the main things that was the limitation of it was you had this massive brick which was the power the power block out of robotics you know obviously your, your classic sort of space walls you know on a space you know stuff that looks like sci-fi detail on a spaceship like i don't know the um moon base alpha or things like that the thing about robotics is it had these things almost like the doctor who roundels where you just sort of plugged things in so, yeah, you just use it as like a construction toy, but this brick weighed an absolute ton and was really massive. And I think it required something like um, one of those big, almost car batteries to, to operate. You can make these kind of terribly impressive kind of sort of robot space dinosaur things, but you could, uh, you, you could move them about two inches because they've just come unplugged or they come out of the wall or it starts sparking or something. There were lots of those in the 80s. I mean, there were, of course, there were rock lords who were like Transformers that turned into rocks. There was Bart, who was the... It was kind of like Stop Boris, but with the sort of geodesic robot that you fire the laser at, and that didn't really take off. None of these things did, because they were just too high concept. Um, And I think it's for a reason we're going to come back to with the next choice, but... Can I just say, if anyone has heard the looks and familiar with Emma Burnell, she speculated when talking about the Ever Ready advert what batteries that size were actually for, and now we know they were for robotics. I actually think the reason that all these kind of techno toys that were they were a bit make learning fun, which never really works, but I think they didn't take off because we were all getting computers around then, and you didn't have to put the the effort in and the hours in you know you could have futuristic techno fun just by well I say plugging in the cartridge but for most of us it was playing a tape although by the time your next choice came along it wasn't tapes anymore it was discs you'll have no difficulty in knowing that was actually the sound of something from the Amiga. What game was it, Martin? It was called The Fairy Tale Adventure, and it was sort of like the great-granddad of these sort of medieval quest games of your Final Fantasies and, and things like that. And I remember my, my dad had recently got uh, an Amiga for work purposes. Nobody's ever really quite sure what he did on it, but it was always something kind of 
terribly, terribly important and quite sort of futuristic. And to keep us kids quiet, he would just come back with the odd game, sort of randomly selected. That he just he'd just look at these Amiga games which came out, and he'd look at the front and go, "Oh, that looks good," and just bring it back. And the Fairy Tale Adventure was like a sort of adventure game, really. It was, but it was like a point and click thing, top down, and it had this the eight bit theme. It had the theme to Fairy Tale Adventure, which just went on and on and on and on. It was three brothers, and you're going off on some quest or other. And the main thing I remember about it was just. So click the mouse, right? It's your first brother would go out. He would he would go and explore these places. He would go into a bar and they'd say, "There's nothing for you here." And then you'd leave the bar, and there's there's quite a lot of forest. And you, you you walk every time you went into the forest, you'd get attacked as if like you would in something like Final Fantasy or or something like that, and killed instantly by some Monty Python Black Knight type. Then the next brother would come and take up the quest and then he would get killed about five minutes later. And each one, although it was done, you know, Amiga graphics, tiny little pixels, you could barely distinguish these three brothers. But they made a point of making each one a little bit weedier than the last. So by the end of it, it's like you're just thinking, oh, might as well just wait for this to reload. Because I know even if I walk into a bar, I'd probably like to get killed with a younger brother. But there were a lot of these sword and sorcery games on the Amiga and the Atari ST, which... I did always think it was a kind of post-Robin of Sherwood thing. I think it's more to do with the fact that it was easier to create. It sounds laughable calling them immersive now, but that's what they were at the time. They were immersive games where there were different modes of gameplay, and you had a world you could explore, and you were, and you didn't have to follow a predetermined route through it. And it was just easier to create your own little world that you know people could thoroughly immerse themselves in in that genre yeah yeah i think it was i mean it seemed to be a real kind of era for as you say for that sort of game as well i mean some of them went a bit more high concept i remember my little brother absolutely just pestering my dad for weeks on end to buy him what something called shadow of the beast which was like six discs on the amiga and it was one of you you were this kind of weird sort of i don't know basilisk creature or something that was just it had it had a 3D sort of scrolling background, and we and we saw that. We're going, whoa, that's impressive, and all these bizarre kind of Doctor Strange type undead realm creatures were just appearing in the sky. But I think there was a real time where. Well, yeah, they weren't quite horoscope skiing. They, I'll give them that. Well, the Amiga is a strange computer, isn't it? As is the Atari ST, because they're a kind of a halfway house between the you know the bbc micro the zx spectrum and all of them and you know what we recognize as a computer now they're literally somewhere between the two aren't they so it is interesting that people use them primarily for gaming because that isn't what they were intended for oddly that was the point at which i started to lose interest in gaming because i was becoming a bit more interested in the mechanics of tv and you know the history of tv and it was the point where i started watching things not because i wanted to watch them because i was interested in the whole where they came from, how they came about. There was a programme that the BBC showed in 1988 that really caught my attention, even though I didn't particularly like it at all. And funnily enough, it's your next choice. And staying with the Armada, of course, back in 1588, they are definitely well and truly on their way. And we will be finding out the latest details from John Craven after The Legend of Tim Tyler. Okay, 
I know what that was because I sat through all 83 million episodes of it and I'm not quite sure why. I think I was trying to work out something about it which we'll come back to in a minute. But Martin, what was that? That was The Legend of Tim Tyler, The Boy Who Lost His Laugh or The Legend of Tim Thaler or something like that because it's a, it's a German TV show which the BBC showed, yeah, in the late 80s. I think it was made in the late 70s. 1979, I believe, which is what got me about it, was, yeah, it it was presented as something new, but it looked pretty old. You know, not old, old, but just different enough fashion-wise for you to think, this isn't actually that new, is it? I totally noticed it at the time, because it's, it's funny, because the BBC used to put on quite a lot of repeats, quite a lot of old stuff still in most, just, in most days. It was just sort of no comment, didn't they? I mean, they would show repeats of Hancock or, or things like that. Um, the Monkeys, I mean, I mean, stuff like you'd expect to see school holidays, things like Fireball XL5 just being shown on, in a, on a morning or something like that, or old sort of newsreel footage. But The Legend of Tim Tyler, it was just, it was just presented exactly, just as a new series. It was just on. That was it fact it was happening and i remember sitting there and watching it thinking this is odd this is quite i mean it's the story about this kid who has an infectious laugh and his laugh is stolen by this evil baron who's a, this kind of devil figure in it there's a little bit of a supernatural to it so after tim tyler's parents are killed uh the baron makes some deal where he takes tim tyler's laugh so he can't laugh anymore but he can win bets and yeah it was made in the late 70s and it's very sort of the fashions are all different flares sort of neck length hair it's quite a kind of sort of prog kind of look to it and very sort of proggy soundtrack yeah very sort of tail end of prog after people should stop doing prog soundtrack isn't it it's like that whole post jean michel jarre thing isn't it yeah yeah it is it's very much like and i think it's shot in lanzarote or something like that so it's got this sort of slightly it was just a very odd thing for the bbc to be showing in i mean it would have been weird enough for the bbc to show it in 1979 but showing it in 1988 that was that was a weird thing to do. And it's it made even more jarring by the fact that it's dubbed into English and badly dubbed as well. There's no attempt to line up the to line up the voices with what's coming out of the mouth. I mean, so the scenes where Tim Tyler actually does laugh, it's sort of it almost sounds like it's sampled, like the biker grove laugh. And yeah, I remember sort of watching and I think I watched all eighty three million episodes of it, just basically wondering how the fucking thing was gonna end. But one of the things that it's quite annoying, I can't find the British version anywhere and I just really want confirmation, but I'm absolutely convinced that the Baron, the evil Baron, the villain in it was dubbed by Tom Baker because you can't mistake Tom Baker's voice for anybody else's voice. Well, although I don't remember people mentioning it at the time, that is quite possible for two reasons. I know Tom Baker did narrate a imported anthology series that was on ITV around the same time called Under the Same Sky, which is boring morality tales about European teenagers. But also, finding out who did the voices on these dubbed versions is really, really hard. I mean, I've in the past I've written quite extensively about The Singing Ringing Tree, uh, Bell and Sebastian, Robinson Crusoe, White Horses, The Flashing Blade. 
any one of them it's almost impossible unless you recognise a voice to find out who did it because there were no credits no they, they were just people presumably just paid for an afternoon to record all these things in one go there's no record of it anywhere they don't none, nobody, even people you can identify as having done voices don't remember having done them it's really weird and like you say as well the UK versions in a lot of cases seem to have vanished because I know a couple of years ago I was working on a programme for Channel 4 where we were going to have a section about The Secret of Steel City which is another very similar Czechoslovakian series around the same time about two kind of steampunk eastern bloc states who were at war with futuristic weapons threatening to use them to each other not a scenario that's at all familiar in the news at the moment but we couldn't find I I think it was Andrew Sachs that narrated the UK version but we could not find it anywhere and the production team even sent somebody down to D Lane Lee Studios to see if audio reels were still there, and they weren't. But that's that's odd. These things were dubbed, but the dubbings were so ephemeral. The only reason you you kind of know how why some who some of the people dubbing them are retrospective programs and things. Um, Monkey does is Miriam Margulies one of the people who dubbed Monkey, and she's mentioned as a whole sort of core. I think Tom Baker did a bit on that as well, didn't he? Uh, so there's probably kind of like a whole there's probably just like about 15 people that just used to go out in Soho and get really slaughtered and then just go into a voiceover studio in the afternoon and just dub the water margin or something well Francis Matthews who was Captain Scarlet seems to do a lot of them in the 60s so yeah I think they just did use the same people again and again but as, as I've said identifying them for certain is an incredible task so if anyone can confer whether it was Tom Baker or not please I've got a more fundamental question about Legend of Tim Tyler, though, which is, when I look back, you know, as I mentioned, I liked The Secret of Steel City, I loved Oscar Keener and Laser, which was a weirdly sort of Dario Argento-likes. I think it was Spanish in about 1979, about a boy, a duck and a laser who went to rescue a kidnapped scientist. Um, I like one or two of the black and white ones, you know, Singing Ringing Tree, although obviously, you know, that's colour when you watch it now. Uh, Bell and Sebastian, all of those ones, but most, the overwhelming majority of dubbed imported serials, whether it was the Children of Totem Town, whether it was Silas, Patrick Packard, or Bloody Heidi, I hated them, and they seemed to be on for the whole year. Now, did you actually like The Legend of Tim Tyler? You know what, I don't know if I really liked it, but it's just one of those things, it's like <laughs> a sort of morbid fascination, really. It's like, this has been, surely this has got to end at some point. And I think, but Tim Tyler did actually end. I'll take your word for that, because as far as I'm concerned, it's still going on. Well, obviously, The Legend of Tim Tyler might well still be going on somewhere, but here's something, or some people, rather, that didn't go on for very long at all.
would it be lovely to drink some English tea? I don't know. I didn't know at the time, and I still don't know now. But I'm sure these boys could tell you. Martin, who were they? They were a band called Thurman, who were around in about 1995, 96, I think. Thurman were sort of probably about fourth tier Britpop, I'd say. You, you go and see them on the on the local indie toilet circuit. Yeah. By the time I saw Furman, I became aware of Furman, I was living in Bournemouth. And at that time, it wasn't really the kind of holiday destination it is now or some of the Has No Two Academy. It was somewhere where if a band came, you would go and see that band just because there wasn't really much of an indie circuit there wasn't a lot to to do so you know, every now and again you know somebody like car to the unstoppable sex machine would rock up or something or i mean and Furman turned up and none of us were really that bothered about Furman. but i, I had do you remember those fierce panda singles those two uh, double disc fierce panda single sets which used to come out two there's this double disc um fierce panda single which i picked up in his record shop in bournemouth and i can't remember what it was called i remember it had a blue cover and it had the blue tones on it and it was the first time i'd ever heard the blue tones and it also had Furman. and Furman did this song called i think it was called this way which was basically the jam song fly but with different lyrics it was a complete rip-off i mean if, if paul weller had bumped into Furman at any point over that summer there had probably been violence just because it was one of the most blatant rip-offs I've ever heard. Me and my friends we found out that Furman were going to play at our local indie club which was called the Hot House spring 96 or something like that so we went along and watched them going god yeah wouldn't it be lovely to have a cup of English tea thinking they're they're all right they're well they're not memorable well they're just here really let's just go and see them I remember thinking at the time there is something oddly familiar about these guys. There's something oddly familiar about the way the, the guitarist kind of holds his guitar and you know, he's got this particular kind of poise. And I was thinking, these guys got tattoos as well. This is a bit odd for like an indie, indie Britpop band. There's something <laughs> a little bit not quite right here. I remember we got to the end of a gig. Um, my friend did her... She did herself proud by uh, getting off with the lead singer from Furman. And when the enemy slagged them off a couple of weeks later, writing this very erudite letter, defending their 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 harmonies and uh, <laughs> things like that. But I remember thinking there is something about these guys and I can't quite crazy. I remember sort of chatting to them a bit afterwards and they were, they were a bit sort of vague, a bit cage. How long have you been going? Oh, oh, a little while. And then... The rumours began to kind of sort of go around the music press. And then I realised, shit, I've actually seen these guys before. Because when I was about 15 or 16, I went through a very brief flirtation with... But we did actually go and see Black Sabbath. But the support band, they weren't billed at all, were called To Die For. And they came out and there was really sort of like terrible early 90s hair metal band, really. And they came out to this... This tune is indescribable. It was just called Evil. And it had this tape loop which just went... (laughs) Over and over again, whilst they played this sort of really bad riff over the top. And so, although we were here to go and see Black Sabbath at their lowest ebb, we we found these guys hysterically funny. Now, little were we to know at the time, but To Die For would realise that metal wasn't really working out for them. 
ditch the singer, get some haircuts, and became Furman. They're the same band as Furman. Well, yeah, they they didn't really get very far because I mean, like you say, there were a lot of these kind of not even second division Britpop bands, you know, because uh, second division would be something like Northern Opera, I suppose, who actually have minor hits. But I do know in the Last Party by John Harris that, which is a fantastic book about the whole Britpop, Tony Blair. Um, everything around that time being the death of Diana and so on all meshed together about how it worked together but there's a brilliant bit where uh, it's quite actually you know somebody I'm not dramatically keen on but Louise Wenner talks quite movingly about realising that Sleeper's career were over and there's a bit where she says you know um, we got the midweeks for I think it was She's a Good Girl and she said I just walked out of the record company office and thought I'm you know I'm back on the street I'm back in the crowd I'm nobody again and after that, he says, uh, you know, the world will be hearing no more from the Gaias, Manta Ray, Heavy Stereo, uh, does a huge big list of them, including Thurman, and says at the end, it was safe to assume Keith from Northern Uproar would not be buying a casino. Which is incredibly cruel, but one of the funniest things I've ever read in a book. But there were all these bands that I liken it to. You know, the... the the way there's all the Nuggets compilations are from the 60s, they picked up the bands that were kind of their equivalents back then, who had maybe one hit and then disappeared, leaving a couple of singles behind, and they they never expected anything more than you know to maybe perform on Where the Action Is twice or whatever. But all of these bands were coming into Britpop, I assume Thurman were no different, expecting to do a menswear, expecting to be on the front cover of everything, and but they seem to have not been ready. They seem to have not had the songs or the the media persona or the attitude. And it's really, really... You know, you think about how... I don't even think the likes of Menswear and Elastica were quite ready for that level of attention. You know, not that they weren't good musically, but I think they as people weren't prepared. But all of these bands, you think, were you not aiming a bit high too soon? There was a lot of bragging in the press, music press, about the kind of record deals that you get from being picked up about that time that probably you know that didn't deter the likes of all these fourth division Britpop bands your Thurmans your Vagis people like them and Creation would have just signed anybody at that point wouldn't they there's there's a real sort of thing at the time where everybody was convinced well we're not just going to have our 15 minutes of fame we're going to have like a whole career off the back of this well the weird thing is that you know they all hoped for this sort of fame and glory that they didn't get but there's so many reminders of these bands because they would go onto anything in pursuit of fame all these unexpected legacies they've got i mean not really Britpop, but jazz man on brass eye is a permanent reminder that yeah. Babylon zoo were huge for a couple of minutes there's I can't remember which band is it where they're singers, one of the celebrities in the video for the Macarena. I, can't remember, I think she was called Pippa, but I can't remember what the band were called. But they were, uh, you know, very much Britpop hopefuls. You've got all manner of British films around that time that various bands turn up in, and they probably didn't expect that these would be the things that define them. But if that's the spirit of Looks Unfamiliar, then I don't know what is. Martin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Higher Than The Sun by Tim Worthington The story of Bloodless by My Bloody Valentine Foxface Alpha by Saint Etienne Screamadelica by Primal Scream Bandwagon S by Teenage Fan Club and how Creation Records took on the world and nearly won 
find out more at timwordington.org.